0: I expect that applause at my funeral, please. Thank you, Pat. When Pat asked me if uh, I would uh, sub for him this Sunday, uh, he guaranteed me I could take that mask off. So I said, <laughs> no problem, we'll be glad to do that. Uh, Pat has been in the pulpit or at the podium here uh, every Sunday since October of last year. And so he's overdue for sort of a day off, even though he's still uh, working, as it were. Uh, And so uh, that means he was classified as an essential worker during this uh, period of time. Uh, But uh, I'm glad to give him a little bit of relief this week uh, in preparing for a sermon. Now, all of us in the room, those of you who are joining us online, uh, those at the International Space Station who are also with us, viewing us through NASA we're glad you're here but we all I think would agree that the last four and a half months have been (coughs) excuse that that was an allergy that was not (laughs) what you're thinking I think we'd all agree that it's extraordinary and unsettling what we've experienced as a matter of fact for those of you that are around back in 1978 in this area we can no longer brag about surviving the blizzard of 78 Those of you who are around may remember that we got a total of 44 inches of snow here in South Bend over a three-day period of time. My brother, who at the time was in the Marine Corps and was getting ready to ship to Japan, he was visiting my parents over in New Haven, Indiana, and uh, was going to come for just one afternoon to visit. And he got here at noon, and the first few flakes started to fall. He did not leave my house for a week. He was snowed in with my two kids, and it's ironic—he never had any children. Uh, I don't know whether that had any impact on him or not. But uh, what you see here is a picture of the Broadmoor Shopping Center over here uh, on the south side uh, that was snowed in. I remember that we got 44 inches. That Sunday was the first Sunday that I could recall that we had to cancel all services here. At, uh, at the church and uh, so Diane and I who live just two blocks north of here walked over to check on the building and as we were coming up the front Diane was so short she couldn't get through the snow she had to piggyback on me and I carried her up into the building but uh, we can't brag about that any longer uh, we're learning new words and phrases things such as COVID-19 that's become part of our standard dictionary now uh, social distancing which we don't always accomplish in 95, I have noticed that my lip-reading skills are deteriorating because of everybody wearing masks. Uh, and during this time, most lessons that are given here are planned well in advance. Uh, it's usually a part of a series, but since Pat was going to be out of town, this week is a standalone to give Pat that much-needed uh, break. So uh, I'm going to offer some things that uh, is not connected to any kind of theme that we've had uh Uh, you know one of the things I wanted to point out here as we continue is that aging happens uh, quickly and stealthily. Uh, It it just crops up on us. Uh, This is a picture from my batch from my 50th high school reunion and that is a picture of me for my senior yearbook which I could not afford to buy and didn't have one Uh, but uh, that was taken back in 1966 uh, and uh, It was a class of 67, but we had the picture taken in 66, so that's me 54 years ago. And uh, as you look at that handsome, testosterone-loaded, virile young man, and look at what I am today, same thing. Uh, uh, What I realize is that uh, this time has passed by so quickly. When we went to that 50th reunion, uh, my wife and I, I'd never gone to any of the other class reunions, but I decided to go to the 50th, and when I got there, I thought to myself, who are all these old people? Uh, these, these kids were 18 years old the last time I saw them, and now they're just old. Uh, so uh, I, I have been here at this church for a long time, as Pat said, since before he was born. 49 years. I'm the second longest person to go through these doors in attendance here. The first one is my wife, Diane, because I dropped her off the door before I came in, so she edges me out as being the longest attending here. But 49 years and also the oldest elder. Now I realize I'm not the oldest person in this room um, but uh, I have reached the age of 71. Uh, I am retired. It's been nine years next month since I retired from the Internal Revenue Service. And people have asked me what I do with all my time since now I've retired. Uh, And I think back to the days of ancient Israel and the older men in those days would gather at the city gates. These were considered the elders of Israel and they would do things like give advice and they would render judgments when there were disputes between neighbors. They would witness the transfer of property and other legal transactions and so they sat at the city gates. They were the elders. Now I am now an elder at the gates of Panera Bread uh, where we do a lot of discussion not about transfer of deeds or anything like that but rather Uh, Where's the best place to buy parts for your lawn tractor or what's going on in current events and so forth? So not being employed full-time anymore, I spent a significant portion of my newly acquired leisure time contemplating what I believe to be foundational issues of life and living. And you might say that I've become sort of an amateur philosopher of sorts. Now my granddaughter, Gwen, uh, back here who's doing the boards, uh, always says that I have to get into death whenever I get up here to speak, and so I didn't want to disappoint, Gwen, on this occasion, Uh, and so death enters into it, because death is coming to us all. I'm grateful it hasn't come to me yet, but I know it's coming. One of the things I want carved on my headstone is, I told you this would happen, Um, but the older I get, the more I try to see the rhythms of life. And so, as death approaches, what I find is it can create a beneficial focus. Let me tell you a story about something that happened to me when I was a teenager. When I was that kid you saw in the picture, uh, my parents had a 1965 Oldsmobile Delmont. Now, they don't make Oldsmobiles anymore, and they quit making Delmonts shortly after they bought one. But that was my dad's first new car. It had a over a 400 cubic inch V8 engine. It was very powerful. And uh, one night he let me drive it to work. Well, I worked at a little place. It was like a Dairy Queen, but it was called Dairy Delight. there are the north side of Fort Wayne. And my brother, my younger brother, worked with me. And he had a friend that worked at night. And we quit at 10 o'clock at night. And so after we quit work one night at 10 o'clock, I had my dad's automobile. And Indiana 327 is a little two-lane highway. A lot of curves in it. It goes between Fort Wayne and it goes up to Corona, Indiana. But we just decided to take a drive up to Garrett, Indiana. And I wanted to show my driving skills. Now, I know my granddaughter Gwen just got her learner's permit. And if any of you young people have driver's licenses uh, and you're beginning, do not do what I'm telling you that I'm about to tell you that I did. But as I was showing off, I noticed I got the speedometer up to 110 miles an hour. Yeah, that was stupid. But I was proud because we stayed on the road, and I was showing off. Well, the next night, my mother needed something from the grocery store that was about four blocks up from the apartment where we lived in Fort Wayne. And so they gave me the keys to the Oldsmobile, and I got in. And almost as I got to the grocery store, the right front tire blew out. And I got to thinking, what if that had happened the night before? I wouldn't be here to talk to you about anything this morning. And so it causes you to focus. Now, I'm sure all of us from the area are familiar with Muffet McGraw. The uh, She just retired as the head basketball coach for the Notre Dame women's basketball team. She's had a wonderful career up there. Uh, and you may know this about her, but she was on a recruiting trip that she had planned uh, to uh, visit a commitment to the Irish uh, by the name of Courtney LeVere who was out in California and so she had booked a flight, this is back in 2001, she had booked a flight from Boston to Los Angeles to uh, you know, talk to Courtney uh, and uh, she booked it on flight, United uh, Airlines Flight 175. Uh, but several days before that flight was ready to take off, uh, an assistant coach at Notre Dame by the name of Kevin McGuff, a McGuff, <laughs> I got the crime dog involved there, but <laughs> Kevin McGuff uh, convinced her to change her plans and instead fly with him out of Providence, Rhode Island, uh, and then he was headed back to South Bend through Detroit on a Delta flight, and so she switched her flight and went with McGuff. Well, what happened was that on that Tuesday morning, when she was supposed to be on United Flight 175, that was the flight that was flown into on September 11th into the one of the World Trade Center towers, and I've often wondered myself. I would like to talk to Muffet McGraw and ask her, what are you thinking now that you've escaped what would have been absolute certain death based upon this change in plans? I mean, it's got to refocus your view of things, the things around you, your family, your friends, your career, everything. It's, I'm, I'm sure it did for her. So as an amateur philosopher and observer of life, I don't want to overthink why I'm still here and that friends and relatives that I have that were younger than me are no longer here. This is not meant to be a depressive lesson. It's meant to challenge us to think. And so, as the fill in speaker this morning, I wanted to share with you some insights that I've had that I believe are relevant to us as a group of people advertising ourselves as followers of Jesus. I just want to give you four observations that I've made in recent years. And the first observation is this that there is a creator, an all knowing, and an incomprehensible God. Now, that sounds pretty foundational, pretty fundamental. I mean, we're all here to worship. Certainly, we believe in a God. But when we stop and think about that, we have a Creator who is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and incomprehensible to us. One of my experiences, I was never a big science student. Science was the subject I hated the most. But I remember an 8th grade science class that I had in which we were doing an experiment by dissecting cow's eyes and I can't remember my science teacher's name now, but she had uh, designated me to be the one to go to the uh, butcher shop to get the cow's eyes to bring to class so that we could dissect them and I think I should have told my mother that uh, I had them in the refrigerator before she opened the door and saw those things staring back at her, I forgot to do that but I remember this teacher beginning to slice into the eye and showing us the intricacies of the eye and how it is constructed and so forth. And I remember this one statement she made. It stuck with me through all these years. She says, I don't know how anybody can look at this and say there is no God. I mean, it was profound. How, how is it that we can predict a solar or a lunar eclipse with absolute accuracy? because of the systematic regularity that has been built into our universe. There are people who actually believe that we are the result of an explosion, that somehow all of these particles came together in some beneficent way, that we have these complex organisms that we call human beings that walk around and think and function in certain ways. But we're able to make those predictions about lunar and solar eclipses because of what God has done as a creator. In Psalm, the 19th chapter, verse 1, the writer says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. We we talk about evidences of God. All we've got to do is look all around us. The creation is so fabulous. When I look at the greens in the field, when I see... The crops that are rising up in the fields right now, ready to be harvested in a couple, three months, that will feed us. The intricacies of each of those things are the result of a creator that we don't know his name. We don't know what he looks like. We sometimes think Michelangelo may have had it where he's got that painting that he's done where you've got the gray-haired flowing mane of an older man reaching out and touching the tip of Adam's finger, but that was Michelangelo's thought. I don't believe that's God. We don't know what God looks like. God is unknowable to us, in the sense that we, we are in His image, but what does that even mean? What image is it? How do we participate? We read in the book of Job, after Job had been afflicted, and then he had his comforting friends coming, it, it actually inflicted more uh, anxiety upon him, Uh, When all of those friends had been put to silence, finally we come to chapter 38 in Job, and Job then has to have a lesson taught to him by God in that God is not knowable. He's incomprehensible because Job is asked by God, you know, what about all these things? Who put the uh, constellations in the sky? Who causes the grain to grow? Who feeds Leviathan? Who does all of those things? You can't answer those things, Job, because I did that, and you don't know anything about it. Who am I to think that I can begin to comprehend the Creator? You know, science is revered by modern man. Who is smarter than a scientist, after all? And we've been hearing this phrase lately, follow the science. But science is simply an attempt to discover some small portion of this vast how this vast creation works. I, I think about the scientists that spend entire lifetime studying one aspect of the creation and we're going to discount the creator who put it all together even the brain those of us that have one even the brain is something fascinating to study uh, I had a dream sometime back I used to have a paper out when I lived in Kokomo growing up, for the Indianapolis Star. It was a morning route. Every morning at 4.30, I'd get up and unbundle my papers and put them. But I had one uh, customer on my route. His name was Norman Dodge. He worked on the railroad with my father. And for some reason, this dream I had about Norman Dodge, I remembered his address was 1105 Columbus Boulevard in Kokomo. After 60-plus years, why would I remember that? I can't comprehend how the brain works, but we have a creator who built such complexity in us that the supercomputers, those are nothing compared to what God has created. God created all of this that we see around us, but he also created us as individuals. And through the complexity of it all, seems to take notice of what we are doing and thinking because our incomprehensible God lives in a realm we don't really know about. We think about what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 139 when he wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew that I would be here at age 71. Now, I don't know whether God has determined that I'll be here at age 91. We'll see how that works out. But God put us together. God built this complexity within us. Jesus himself said to his disciples, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them Not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. God knows each one of us. He's created this complexity, and yet he knows us intimately. And so it is, we have a creator who is all-knowing and incomprehensible. But make no mistake, there is a creator. Second observation of this amateur philosopher that man is fallen. One does not have to be a theologian to come to this conclusion because mankind is totally corruptible and messes up everything he touches. Just just look around. Whenever we think we've made an advance, along comes man with his greed and his avarice and he messes it up. He messes up everything he touches. In Jeremiah 10, 23, we read, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their own steps. There is a need for direction being given to us in how we conduct our lives here on this earth. The book of Judges illustrates that man continues to go through cycles of doing the right thing, and then he regresses and reverts to doing the wrong thing, inevitably. It always requires a rescue From God, man is fallen. And as we look around in this world, as beautiful as it is, as complex as it is, man is a corrupting influence in this great creation. And we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. We need someone to save us from our own corruption. The third observation I would make is that while we all share some characteristics we are each unique individual entities. As we look around us there are things even though we're each individuals there are things that we share in common that, that ties us together as part of humanity and yet we're also as we look around us very individual people not two, not two of us look alike unless you're a twin and even the twins sometimes Uh, are able to make distinctions between themselves. And this is why I believe that demographic labeling can be very dangerous and harmful. We see more and more of it as we go. Whereas there's one characteristic we see in that individual and consequently we make a judgment about that individual that should never be made. I remember the story of a man going into a store and he asked the clerk, he says, do you have Polish sausage that I could buy. And the man looked back at him and he says, "Uh, Are you Polish? And the man became very insulted. He says, Why do you ask me that? If I came in and asked you if I could buy some Italian sausage here, would you ask me if I'm from Italy? Or if I was any other kind of uh, ethnic person, would you ask me? And he says, Why do you ask me that? And he says, Well, sir, this is Ace Hardware. (laughs) Now, I have to confess to being as, and believe me, the best Polish jokes I've ever heard have been told to me by Polish people. So, I hope nobody was offended by that. But, I confess to being as much at fault as anyone else in making judgments about individuals based upon one observed action or one observed characteristic. I mean, it seems that's part of our fallen nature that we do that. I've got a daughter here who has tattoos. Now, I love my daughter with all of my heart but she's got tattoos. And somebody could look at her and say, that's a biker chick. Unless they get close to the tattoos and read they're all scriptures. And then they think, well, she's a Bible thumper. But anyway, I remember when I was a kid, the church, when we started attending church, it was in the summertime, and the way they gave communion was they would pass trays down the aisles, and it was summertime. And the guy that passed down our aisle that first time uh, was wearing a short-sleeved white shirt. And he obviously was from the greatest generation he'd served in the war. And as he was handing and stretching it out, I noticed on his farm there was a tattoo of a very voluptuous-looking woman. <laughs> and he'll never get rid of that tattoo. And he may have changed his life. He might have changed his mind. But if I was making one judgment based upon that one observation, who knows? Or if you see a mother in a grocery store struggling with a child that is unruly and angry. And her reaction to that is something that say I need to call uh, uh, somebody from the authorities to come and check out this family for abuse. We're making a judgment based upon one observation of one occasion. Or if we see a, a guy behaving rudely to a cashier at a fast food, establishment, we think to ourselves what a jerk, and we label him and judge him. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know what has been in his day. He may have just lost his job, He may have lost a spouse. He may have lost a child. He may have had all kinds of things happen to him that cloud his actions, and we don't know anything about that, but we've made a judgment based upon him. The point is that singular characteristics or behavior resulting in a label does not do justice to understanding who the person really is and who they are struggling or what they are struggling with. Such labeling has been and continues to be very damaging and is the result of a very fractious political campaign or atmosphere, I I would ask, ask this question, do we really want politicians giving us instruction on being good and productive citizens? Frankly, I don't want to take my cues from any politician, let alone whether one is good or bad. You are who you are and God sees you and loves you in spite of those times when we stumble. And he has provided for you a way to get over that stumbling. There is a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew, the 7th chapter, about judging based upon individuals. Judge not that you be not judged, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? We've got to quit being hypocrites. Take the plank out of our own eye and then we'll clearly remove the speck from our brother's eye. We are not judges. That's not what God has called us to be. My fourth and final observation as this amateur philosopher is that we are a collection of fallen individuals who have been redeemed and brought into one collective body known as the kingdom of God. It is not human government upon which we depend for our meaning, worth, or future well-being. It is truly that Latin phrase that we use for our country that probably is no longer applicable E purbus unum, out of many one. We come from all kinds of backgrounds, but we've all been called into the kingdom of God. We have a variety of experiences in this room, wherever you're viewing us from, that make us who we are, but we have all been collected into the kingdom of God based upon the blood of of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when we label people, such labeling uh, is not well. God truly there is something that has happened to make us one. And that is that our God has redeemed us for those corruptions. When we have a baptismal service, we have people that we put under the water, and we say that is symbolic. They're being buried in a watery grave to be raised to walk in a new life. Each of them, as individuals, is highly valued by God. And when they do that, they are pledging to serve. And so each of us, as we think about being a collection of fallen individuals, we need to recognize that it's only by God's mercy and God's grace that we are who we are. None of us are better than any other. The only way we are made perfect is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I want to close out with a scriptural admonition, a scriptural encouragement If I could encourage you to do anything, it would be to turn off the news. We're in a 24-7 news cycle now. I I long for the days when there were only three networks and you only had a half hour of national news. We we seemed to have a lot lower blood pressure back then. But now it's 24-7. Turn it off. Get off of social media, except for you people who are watching on Facebook right now. (laughs) But get off of social media because we see so much going on that destroys us, that brings us down, that pits us against one another. I always wondered about the disciples that Jesus called to follow him. And You know, two of those disciples came from diametrically opposed backgrounds. One was Matthew, my favorite apostle. He was a tax collector. And then there was Simon Zelot, uh, the zealot, Simon Zelotes. And he was before his call from Christ, was positioning himself to help overthrow the Roman government. I wonder after Jesus called them, and they were sitting together at a meal, where well, they sat down and discussed, "You know Matt, what do you really think about that Roman Empire now?" Or Simon, you did well, you were really going to throw it. My guess is their focus changed completely in their walk with Christ, and that these two people who came from diametrically opposed backgrounds now sit together as brothers, united in one cause. And that causes the focus of Jesus Christ. And so let me close with this passage from Colossians chapter 3 as our admonition. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which are idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you were taken off have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave, Scythian or barbarian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience bear with each other, and forgive each one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Would you bow with me, please? Holy God, our Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for what you have done for us, and I pray, Father, that as we observe your working in creation, your creation, As we observe, Father, how that we are at times full of fault, make mistakes, stumble and fall, that we remember, Father, that you have called us to a higher calling, to a purpose that is better than anything we could have ever conceived, that you have called us to walk with you and your Son and await your calling to an everlasting kingdom of which there will be no end. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be in that kingdom We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.